Tell me about your um your new walk, Tom. So yesterday I was <laughs> I was coming home from work and I was thinking about what I wanted to eat and I was like, Do you know what? I'm gonna make pad thai. And then as someone who cares about home cooking, um I decided, Do you know what? I'm gonna buy a walk as well. So went to Sainsbury's, paid too much for a walk, came home and made lovely pad thai. And that's and that's about it. And then played bass. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, look, this, we should do a, um, a spin-off cooking show. <laughs> Beneath the walk. Beneath the walk. Cooking with, uh, cooking with Thomas. There used to be, um, there used to be a, a takeaway in Reading where I lived. It may still be there, for all I know, called uh, Walk on Wheels, um, which is very nice. And I don't know if that was meant to be some kind of pun. What um, about a heavy metal stir-fry place called Walk On or Walk and Roll? I'm sure walk and roll must exist. Yeah, definitely. There's definitely some like Chinese takeaway in Ireland that's called walk and roll. <laughs> if there's not, I I've s- trademarked that. I could, it, yeah, I can see if this whole like tattoo podcasting thing doesn't work out. I can see you, you know, the next Jamie Oliver. Oh God, don't say that. I hate Jamie Oliver. What's your uh, what's your pad thai recipe? So it's the sauce is standard tamarind paste, oyster sauce, fish sauce, and some brown sugar. Very nice. Then it's just like I to be honest, I buy the stir fry mix in a bag just because if I come home from work and I want to spend an hour chopping vegetables, you so like the convenience. Yes, exactly. So yeah, it's just stir fry mix, uh, chicken, prawns, egg. I put the sauce in stir fried up, put the noodles in, then nearly break your wrist trying to toss it all together, then put it in a bowl. <laughs> and don't forget, and the good thing, the tip I have for texture, is make sure to chop your peanuts and put it in before you're serving and then put some extra peanuts on top. Oh, classy. Yeah. That sounds nice. Yeah, it, it is nice. And for anyone who doesn't eat meat, you can substitute it with tofu, you can put seitan in it, whatever you want. A little bit of, uh, little bit of celery, that's what we vegans eat. Mm-hmm. Zero calorie celery. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, uh, I, I think like you know, walk, walk. You buying a walk was it in celebration of our topic today? Uh, I, I feel like it might have subconsciously been in the back of my head. Although pad thai, not really native to the region no. we're talking about. No, but... no, no. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> Could have made some, some. I don't know. Uh, mapu tofu or mapo tofu or something like that um yeah well well uh oh, welcome also, to beneath the skin yeah you're very welcome to beneath the skin yeah. the show about the history of everything told through the history of tattooing i am one of your hosts thomas amani and i'm joined by my esteemed co-host dr matt lauder hello tom forgot to intro the show again as always i did that for peak behind the curtain that's because we've been sitting here talking for an hour before i hit record <laughs> Well, we've been chatting, chatting away about your walk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we've look, we've been talking uh, over the past uh, few weeks about um, you know trying to kind of talk about some things that weren't uh, contemporary or nineteenth uh, and twentieth century Western tattooing, and so um, uh, I figured uh, it would be a good opportunity uh, as we're looking to talk about things that are a bit more broad and a bit more. Um, a bit more diverse, I suppose, like to try and talk a bit about the history of tattooing in the Far East, like both in China 
and in uh, you know places uh, around um, the, uh, uh, the 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 bottom end of the Silk Road, basically Vietnam um, and the and the upper upper parts of of what is contemporary China. So yeah, I I, I don't know how much you know about the the history of China, Tom. Uh... I know at one stage in the 18th century, there was a guy who believed that he was uh, Jesus's nephew and God's uh, <laughs> reincarnation of God and killed 36 million people. But other than that, other than Hong Christ, I don't know a whole lot. <laughs> um, well, so what we what is today, I guess, the contemporary kind of nation state of of China um, is a has historically been like a collection of um of em- of empires and of of warring and you know disparate kind of factions and groupings and um and, and kind of principalities and that kind of thing um which have become uh politically and through conquest the modern nation state of china um and so when we're talking about about just for the purposes of this podcast we're going to you know we'll talk about China but um not every single city that we'll mention today and not every single empire is uh you know was at the time part of the main uh Han Chinese empire they they may have been at the borderline in fact we'll come on to a particular story about um a hero uh, a tattooed hero of the Chinese uh, nation um, of the Song Dynasty, who was actually fighting some um, rival tribes and rival kind of ethnic groupings, who actually now, for things I think we'll talk about and will become interesting, are now part of the modern Chinese nation state, which makes this story a bit complicated. But we'll come to that. Um, the reason, like, I think it's worth talking about like this stuff, and actually, it's difficult because. We have way more written records than um, uh, than like figurative or illustrative ones, so it's hard to know a lot. Really, what a lot of this stuff looked like, and also the Han Chinese, the main mainstream Chinese culture, didn't have a um, like normative mainstream tattoo culture. So, like the Greeks, like the Romans, like the Persians, those big empires of the classical world, there wasn't a kind of mainstream, you know, normative tattoo culture, but, but tattooing was present in various ways, both clearly in moments of kind of subcultural, uh, almost kind of you know, fashion, and we might call it. Uh, and also tattooing technology was used for things like, um, uh, again, as in, as in Greece and in Rome and in Persia, it was used for stigmatizing criminals, marking and used as a punishment. Um, but I want to like I want to start. This is something that really blew me away when I read it um, because it sounds super super familiar. So, um, as I said, like it was clear that where there was tattooing, um, it was largely on soldiers, uh, although then not exactly tolerated, and on kind of criminals, bandits, that kind of thing. But there's this amazing um, uh, anthropological account written by. Uh, a writer called Duan Shengxi um, in the late eighth century, so in the sort of seven hundreds, uh, which is like you know thirteen hundred or so years ago. It's, uh, this is incredible. This is um, a story from a city called uh, Jingzhu, 
which is um, essentially like in the, I think I'm right in saying I'm going to double check this, but I think it's in the southern, um, uh, like sort of near near what is now North Korea. Um, this city, yeah, this city that's in the sort of southern contemporary uh, Hubei province near the banks of the Yangtze. And it's this amazing description. So um, in Zhengzhou, Zhang Zhuan Chengxi writes, there were tattoo vendors in the streets. They had imprinting stamps into which they would press needles together closely into the shapes of all kinds of things, like toads and scorpions, mortars and pestles, or whatever people wanted. Once they'd imprinted the skin, they'd brush the pricked area with black lead. After the wound had healed, the tattoo was finer than the picture on the pattern from which the customer had originally ordered. Um, like, I had a chat with uh, Benoit about this, Benoit Robitai, who we had in a previous episode, because, like, as a and tattoo... Who, and who will be on a future episode. Yeah, and maybe we'll talk to him more about this when he's on, but because that's as a tattoo tool, that seems to be quite unusual. Um, we see that kind of idea of like the design with spikes on, um, into which you then rub ink. That is what's was used, has been used to mark deserters from the British Army or people of bad character, BC. And it's still that technology is still sort of used today to mark um mark cows, like brand cows. You can you you best you have the design laid out in kind of sharp points, you stamp it in and then rub the ink over. Um so whether or not this is an accurate description of what was actually happening um, is unclear. And it's certainly probably the, the only place we find this in history. Um, but and it, it, it's also interesting in that it differs from a lot of accounts of what we were seeing, like at the time of, you know, <coughs> series of needles bound together, but the design is applied over the course of a process rather than a single stamp. Yeah, yeah, and that and and the stamp, obviously, the stamps we've seen elsewhere in places like Jerusalem with pilgrimage tattoos. Those designs were cut into wood blocks, mm-hmm. almost printed on the skin like a potato print, and then you tattoo over the lines. This is mm-hmm. just like very efficient, oof, one and done. Um, but what I love about that is just sort of how you know how familiar that sounds as a, as a kind of you know to modern eyes, right? Like basically over a thousand years ago, th- there is places where there were tattoo shops and you could go and pick the cool design you wanted. And, um, you know, you'd end up with this interesting thing just for the sort of fun of it, really, rather than any kind of deep, meaningful, affiliative or, uh, or, or ritualistic purpose. And like 1300 years ago, I think that's really incredible. Um, and I think this was interesting because, you know, we've gone on about it a lot and I've gone about it all the time, but before this idea that tattooing was discovered in the Pacific, um, and even before this idea that tattooing was discovered in the Americas, um, in the New World, the really the first accounts we have of in in um, European sources of foreign foreign you know distant tattoo cultures come from travels to the Far East and places that are in contemporary China and on the way to contemporary China, northern Vietnam. Um, and they come through, uh, firstly, I think, primarily the, the stories of Marco Polo. Mm-hmm. Um, Which we talked so, about on a, one of our first episodes, talking about his recounting his experience in Vietnam, seeing people being tattooed with needles bound to a block and applied in a way that we would know, right. in, like shapes of alligators and stuff like that. 
Right, yeah. So this was I think this so this comes up because Vietnam is one of those places and I think we talked about this in the probably the very first episode. It's like the, the Vietnamese are one of these painted people, right? Mm-hmm. They're one of these they're one of these um uh, groupings who were described by their neighboring cultures as like those guys with the tattoos over there. Mm-hmm. Um so Polo was yeah, traveling in the late 13th century. Um, twelve seventy one to twelve ninety five, um, in yeah modern modern day Guangzhou and the southeast of China, there's um a tattooing trade with visitors who flock from far and wide to be painted with needles, and in the southwest, and this is I think what you're referring to, like five uh, men take five needles tied together with which they prick their flesh until the blood flows. They put a black dye on which cannot come off. The black bands of black dots they etch into their arms apparently served as markers of nobility and elegance. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is and- something that's super important as well when we talk about China, both historically but also geographically. You mentioned the Silk Road. Is that like China, in a big sense of the word, a big in a, some ways was essentially the center of the world for a long time because the it was only after a certain point that Europeans were really trading with China, but that like everything flowed through China, spices, fabrics, you know, tools, trade. And it is, you know, almost natural that even if there is trade with cultures further to the East who did have tattooing cultures that we have evidence for, that it's only natural that it ended up in China, but also as well to bear in mind that China is such a massive region as well that there is there's no way to say there wasn't necessarily existing indigenous tattooing practices in China before we even knew it. Right, and and yeah, there's obviously tattooing in cultures that border China. So the the the, the culture the cultures like the Pazariks in Siberia and Mongolia. Um, uh, cultures from come you know from from further south, like there's clearly and, and which direction those flows happened and which degrees those, those influences flow is still something that I think anthropologists are arguing about. But what I always found what I found so interesting about this stuff, well, firstly, actually, you know, for a while people thought that Marco Polo's stories were basically um, were fictitious that he hadn't really. Hadn't really been, um, but but contemporary scholarship basically sort of suggests that you know there was some confabulation happening, and actually, what we have as the writings of Marco Polo are actually translations from a later source. Um, so, and, and there are various versions of the manuscript. So, which one's the original? It's a big kind of set of debates on this stuff, and it you know over the course of when he was traveling in 1271 and uh, when the manuscripts were starting to be published in translation in like the um, 15th century and the 16th century in English, like the first English translation was in 1579, 200 years before mm. Captain Cook mentions of tattooing, of course, in there. Um, and it's it's also an interesting point to touch on since you are someone who is experiencing it right now that like, Translation is a very, very hard thing to do, particularly for like historical documents, because they're depending on what language it's being written in. There is so much linguistic uh, context that can be lost, even if the translation is being done at a contemporary time after it's been written, let alone like 200 years later. 
Yeah, and that happens a lot. Like, there's lots of argument, for example, in Greek sources about when a a mark on the skin is described, whether it's a scar or a, some kind of magical thing, or whether it's a tattoo. Actually, what we have in polo um, is actually these very specific descriptions of needles and ink in the skin, um, describing this practice. You know that we now call um, tattooing. Um, there's another um, another a writer, an Italian trader after polo called Niccolo da Conti, um, and he said both men and women of this country prick themselves, making diverse marks of diverse colours on their body. And so this idea, you know, this idea of actually like tattooing and the Orient and tattooing of the and the Far East again becomes a kind of interesting part of the imagination of the um, pre-colonial era of, of of what that part of the world looks like. And that's accentuated because, as I as we indicated, right in in China itself, um, like tattooing gets to be a marker of well, not being tattooed, right? Is you know is who the kind of Han Chinese, the kind of dominant cultural grouping are, and their um, uh, rival rival tribes, rival ethnic groupings. Um, Get described as you know, barbarians and as as kind of you know as as the painted people and so they're the people like as I said like the Greeks with the Thracians or the Sumatians for example in China the Han get to describe their neighbouring um, uh, groupings uh, as as different from them primarily because they have tattoos so the best example here are um, like. Uh, the um, Yi and Yue people in the southeast who are described as tattooing their bodies and cutting their hair short. Even um, mm. even cutting your hair short, you know, was something that was different uh, from what the mainstream. Yeah, um, and historically, did. the Han the Han Chinese had their hair quite long as well. Exactly. Yeah. So this is like tenth, this is sort of in the century before Polo. So like tenth to twelfth century. Song era. So these southeastern people, they're described, you know, as tattooing their faces. Obviously, like this also is is groupings in Taiwan that we mentioned briefly in our Japan episode. Um, the uh, Li people uh, on the island of Hainan were uh, were, caught, were talked about embroidering their faces and the necks of women as marks of status and maturity. And again, whether embroidery there means some kind mm. of stitched technique mm. or whether it's just a metaphor is, I think, um, uh, unclear. But uh, And it, it, it says a lot of, well, it says a lot as well about the construction of a national myth as well. When you have a country or a nation that is made up by many different regions and many different peoples, what you have in the case of the Han Chinese, is when one group becomes dominant, that's when all of the origins of the other groups who formed the country kind of either get wiped away or kind of pushed to the background, or they're written in a certain way that isn't necessarily accurate. Hence why we have, you know, the painted people savages at the borders or inside the country. That's right. And so, you know, that the Han Chinese basically were... Um uh, you know, their, their kind of dominant belief system, their dominant cultural system was Confucianism. Um, again, around at this time of the Song Dynasty in the 10th and 11th centuries, 
even through the, into the 12th centuries. And Confucianism, one of the things it preaches is like bodily integrity, purity, um, you know, civilization, basically. And so again, like in discourse and in practice, for the Confucian Han, not being tattooed is 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 a way to accentuate how different they are from these tribal groupings on the islands and cultural land masses um, outside of their borders, right? Um, and yeah, that gets you to build this kind of like cultural monomyth about who we are as people. Mm. And similar to what we talked about in our series on Japan, like the creation of the the Japanese people as we know them, kind of a dominant monomyth pretty much of the origin of the country that like Japan is, you know, one group of people, the Ainu aren't important. They're just Japanese. Yeah. Well, well, they're not Jap. Yeah. They're not Japanese in the case of the yeah. Ainu, right? Yeah. Um, and so you have, this is, maybe that's a nice segue to actually this, this story, um, which I talk about in the book, which is, I think, um, kind of interesting of that, certainly in the way it's been dealt with in modern Chinese conversation so the story in the book that i used to sort of anchor these conversations is the story of a 12th century uh so again in this song dynasty um he's a military man a, a kind of a warrior basically fighting for the song empire against uh, us uh in, in a war against tribes to the north called the juchen uh, and this is a guy called ufa um and UFA is this like almost like folk hero, right? In uh, in Chinese history, like he's this kind of um, yeah, like he's the kind of person that's you know he's this medieval like figure that has operas and plays written about him. There are video games that you can he's a play with in which he's a playable character. There are contemporary dramas like novel novelizations of his life. Like he's this kind of like heroic medieval like knight basically would be the European equivalent, I suppose. Like he's fighting with great patriotism, with great bravery. Uh, and as we'll come to, um, his life, you know, has been told in a sort of series of ways, which become quite soap opery. Um, and in them, the story of him being tattooed and, and what happens after he's tattooed and with his tattoo becomes a really interesting, um, like pivot point for a lot of his story, which is interesting, right? Because as we we're just saying, the the Han Chinese in this period were were not very, you know, tattooing wasn't common. But this huge famous figure, like, turns out to have been tattooed. Mm-hmm. So how co- how convenient that a noble warrior was tattooed and marked himself out as different. Exactly right. So the the story of UFA, as I said, it's been told countless times. Um. <coughs> Um, but in every story, pretty much, um, he is tattooed by his mum, uh, by his mother. Would you let your mum tattoo you? Um, my mother hates tattoos, so uh, I, I trust her enough to do it. I'd say that. Well, I don't know if I don't know if Madame Yue likes tattoos either, but she did it anyway, like reluctantly. So there's, this is a quote from. Um, a, a telling of UFA's life from uh, told in 1957. It says, I raise the embroidery. This is in the voice of Madame Wei. 
I raise the embroidery needle, but I cannot carve. The skin is blue and white. Lines of words and drops of blood make the heroic text all line up as loyalty and filial piety, so solid and permanent that even heaven can take it as a standard. So in, when this is staged, and there are, this has been on stamps even, and all kinds of things, um, basically this, this sort of elderly woman is here with her needle, and her big, muscular son, top off, is on the table. We love a big, sexy son. We love a big, sexy son. Um, and he basically is going off to fight. He's going off to the, the far northern borders of the empire to fight these invading barbarian hordes. Mm-hmm. So he says to his mother, I want you to tattoo uh, my back as a vow not to follow treacherous people. She says, my child, if you're really so devoted, you shouldn't worry things won't go to plan. Why on earth would you want to be tattooed? It's not very patriotic to hurt yourself. Um, but he insisted. And so he ended up, she ended up tattooing on his back four characters, which spell out um, uh, Jin Shong Bao Guo, serve the nation with utmost loyalty. Right. So um, in most tellings, his wife is there watching too. Um, She cries while she does it. She didn't want to hurt him. She didn't want to lose him. It's this very tender moment. Um, Probably if you ever end up tattooing me, Tom, this is what it'll be like. (laughs) It'll be tender. Um, Funnily funnily enough, um, not to derail uh, the story, (laughs) but when we were at the... uh, the Tattooed Academics Conference, the interdisciplinary one that we uh, went to a couple of months ago, I actually did get to try and tattoo something for the first time. Adam McDade, I know you're listening. Shout out to you, Adam. I had a machine and some fake skin and just had some like uh, flash designs and I got to tattoo some skin. So, you know, it won't be my first time, but it might be my <laughs> second time when I tattoo you, Matt. Might be our last time. Um so, so it's this very tender moment, right? And, and, and what the tattoo does in the story, I suppose, is several things, right? Like it serves to, again, in this kind of almost Confucian way, like give her son's body to the nation. Um, mm-hmm. So she's, she's sort of willing for him to go and fight and possibly die. Um, so it's, it's a moment of sacrifice for her as much as it is for him. Um He's, um, his whole story, his whole life tale becomes a kind of fable, a parable of honor, loyalty, patriotism, national struggle. Um, so yeah, he, 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 most of these, most of these tellings, we have this dramatic moment of the, of the tattoo. Um, and, and it shows that he's, um, you know, willing to shed blood it sort of prefigures this violent war that he's heading himself into it it shows that he's tough it shows that he's brave it shows that he's selfless um as i said he's giving his body you know giving his body to the nation um as a kind of servant of it and um it also foreshadows in like nice um you know dramatic style what happens later in the story so many years after being tattooed um and I'm quoting from my own book here. Having won fame and glory on the northern battlefields, he was arrested by a political rival uh, called uh, Quinn Hui uh, on false charges of treason. 
Facing death, he pleaded with the judge to understand he was a true patriot and the charges against him were scurrilous lies. Just as the judge was poised to pass sentence in a moment of high courtroom drama, Wei's shirt ripped open to reveal his true convictions proudly etched into his skin, just as his mother had made them. The judge was aghast. No traitor would have such a nationalistic slogan on his body. Wei Fei proudly wore an oath of indelible commitment to his country. Thwarted and embarrassed in the courtroom, Quin Hui and his wife nevertheless plotted to ensure Wei would be put to death anyway, and in different versions of the story, he's either executed on a trumped-up charge, poisoned, stabbed, or strangled. Um, other versions of the narrative have his mother present in the courtroom. Um, not here in these tellings for treason, but for unjustly killing another man. In desperation, she pleads with the judge to take notice of his tattoo, a clear sign of his evident moral character. And in these tellings, the judge takes Madame Wei's pleas to heart and is convinced to spare the sainted Wei from the death penalty because of the marks on his skin. I almost accidentally killed a pure-hearted, low-born hero, the judge exclaims, before setting him free. Um, there's other stories about the tattoo. Um, in some versions, it's not, it's not just a preparation of war, but instead also a commemoration of his decision to renounce a someone that bribed him. So this mm. kind of pirate chief, this kind of mercenary mm. had offered him money to like denounce the nation and go and fight for a rival uh, mm. uh, army. But he refused the money and got tattooed to remind him, you know, never to, never to, never to forget his oath. So in, in the, in these stories, you know, the, it's intended as a memorial, basically not to forget the lessons of fidelity. She taught him as a child with a permanent patriotic oath ensuring her maternal wisdom endures in him long after death. Um, but these are like, you know, these are sort of tattoos as moral character. Um, and like, yeah, as I said, it, it, it's, it's unusual um, in, in hand culture, but we do have records of um, uh, tattooing happening in the military. Um, so it would have been, you know, as in militaries elsewhere, it would have been something that, uh, enlistees would have done um, but yeah like it's an interesting Weifei's story is a is a problem for the reasons you pointed out about this national identity thing right because he was fighting these Jurchen northern tribes right um, but those tribes are now part of modern day China and the PRC and like contemporary Chinese politics has fought quite um vocally about whether or not like you know ixnay on the you know jurchen yay or whatever like maybe if we talk about this too much we're gonna undermine our claims to a kind of pan-ethnic modern chinese nationality um and these descriptions have been going on like since the 50s like basically questions asked in parliament and, and academics in china like arguing you know should this guy be hailed as a hero of the modern day Chinese state? Because actually in some senses, he's an illustration of the fact that our, the story we tell ourselves about a pan-ethnic grouping is, 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 is fudged at the edges, let's say. Um, yeah. It's, it, it's, <laughs> a, the sharp edges are smoothed out to fit kind of a worldview that came hundreds of years after this story was first, you know, solidified. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, like nearly a thousand years after, mm -hmm. <laughs> after right? Um, like, yeah, 
this tattoo on his back like relates to a rather different conception of Chinese nationhood. Mm. Um, but actually, as things come now, like he is, like he as we as you just said, those edges are kind of smoothed over, and he gets to be this brave hero of of, of the modern Chinese nation state. Um, yeah. Hey, are you enjoying the show? If you really like Beneath the Skin and you want to help support us, you can do so on Patreon. For little as five quid a month, you can help make this show possible, help us buy research materials. So if you like the show and you want to support us, consider kicking us a few quid a month and you'll get everything from bonus episodes to Q&As and you can even vote on what tattoo I'll get when we reach a certain subscriber count. Matt, have you got anything to say? You should really definitely uh, fund the Patreon because tattoo history is massive, right? Deep, wide, complicated. We're covering some big hit topics on the main feed, but on the Patreon subscriber-only feed, we'll be getting into some really more interesting niche, deep topics you don't want to miss out on. And honestly, the chance to kind of decide what Thomas gets on his body is probably just a once in a lifetime opportunity. Subscribe, chuck us a few quid. Don't miss out on the chance to ruin Thomas's body forever. Everyone knows that tattoo aftercare is one of the most important steps in getting a new tattoo. We all want our fresh new tattoos to heal as easily and hassle-free as possible so we can show them off to the world. That's why Saniderm's here to help. Driven by science and innovation, Saniderm products have been thoroughly tested and used by doctors and tattoo artists alike for over 10 years. Saniderm brings cutting-edge technology to make your tattoo healing process a breeze. No more messing around with cleaning and plastic every few hours with Saniderm's amazing range of aftercare products. I personally have used Saniderm to heal my tattoos in the past, and they made what used to be a daily process of setting reminders on my phone to clean and rewrap my tattoo into a one-step process. Their medical-grade products include aftercare balms, soaps, and my favourite, their second skin aftercare bandages. Saniderm's tattoo bandages are designed to be waterproof, breathable, and keep your new tattoo protected from whatever the elements can throw at it so you can get on with your day worry-free and confident your new tattoo will look vibrant and will heal faster. Plus, their products are all natural and ethically sourced, so you can take comfort in knowing that you're healing your tattoos with nature's finest ingredients. So next time you're in an artist's chair, why not try Saniderm, healing your tattoos the modern way so you can get on with your day. Check out the link in the description of this episode for discounts on a range of Saniderm products or for more information. And it's funny because, like, you know, we joke about this show being the history of everything told through the history of tattooing. And it seems like tattooing in China has played quite a lot in its development as a state because obviously you have this story. But then you also have, like, tattooing being quite important in Hong Kong as well, as, like, Hong Kong is, you know, a British colony, you know, it's owned by part of the British Commonwealth. There's a lot of trade. Obviously, wherever there's sailors, there's tattoos. And Hong Kong has always played a part in modern Chinese politics as well. Right. And and those, um, you know, lots of tattooing was, has been happening in, in Hong Kong basically over the centuries as because it was a a naval port, right? And mm-hmm. um, after after the Meiji Restoration and after tattooers left Japan, as we talked about in the Japan episode, lots of Japanese tattooers went and worked in Hong Kong. 
um it was a you know because it was a a, a base a place to stop off like plenty of um particularly brits who were traveling um would get tattooed in hong kong and you know many of the famous tattooers out of hong kong including pinky young pinky young most famously you know were became global names amongst tattooed naval members because yeah they you know they that they, they would they would get tattooed to mark the fact they traveled and of course like the we talked about this again in the in uh, in the Japan episode and also when we talked to Benoit about um about Ukiyo-e, the influence of like Chinese print in what became Japanese tattooing and then that Japanese tattooing's influence on Western tattooing like that's all very very like intersected in a very complicated mm. way and that's happened almost despite the fact that tattooing in China was not working in in the same way right mm-hmm. and like, even for even further back than that the Chinese influence on the Suikoden as well where most Japanese tattoos come from yeah that's what I was referring to and I, and you see now like in, the first tattoo convention in modern China was I think in 2012 in Shanghai uh, maybe a bit later than that, but like, uh, there's so many amazing tattooers out of China now, working in a, a style that is often very influenced by Chinese graphic print, and it's almost like a kind of, you know, it's almost like an alternative history. Like, what might have mm. been, what might have been, had the 19th uh, or 18th century Chinese had a kind of back piece tradition as developed in Japan, like the stuff that's happening in modern day China, Chinese tattooing, which is like taking a lot of those cues is like absolutely fascinating. Um, and I think, I think as well, it's, it may be important to talk about like, as you had like the Victorian obsession with Orientalism, you also had the resurgence of interest in Chinese influenced tattooing in the eighties and nineties, where you had so many people, particularly in the U S and in Europe getting, you know, Chinese symbols oh, tattooed yeah. on them in a way that, like, seem to emer- coexist and co-emerge with, you know, the emergence of, like, what we would consider tribal tattooing. And it seemed like this rebirth of this fascination of the tattooing cultures of the East. Yeah, and this is that kind of post... uh post-hardy, like, 1970s... You know, postmodernization of tattooing in which everything, but it's all very. I think we should probably like do that on a separate episode because it's a slightly divergent conversation from like from this. But like, how how yeah, how this? I mean, it is interesting in a way that, for example, we talked about Horichiro uh, in in uh, in Yokohama in the nineteenth century uh, and British travelers to him in Japan who were getting tattooed, and he would claim. That he was using a thousand-year-old Chinese ink to tattoo them, <laughs> right? Um, and yeah, like this idea of like the kind of you know ancient Chinese wisdom and stuff, particularly with tattooing, is very interesting because there wasn't really that kind of tattooing happening in ancient China. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, but it, it it is it coexists with um. I'm sure Edward Said is like flying around in the afterlife as I say this, but this obsession with Orientalism and this obsession with the mystical and kind of otherworldly qualities of the quote-unquote Orient. Um, and 
it, it kind of like pervade into the modern era of like talking about these ancient Chinese tattoo techniques. And weirdly enough, because um, as I am much more engaged with like the weirdest sides of the internet than you are now, um, there's a kind of trend of holistic tattooing that has come back now. So it's people that are um, kind of extolling the ritualistic aspects of tattooing and combining it with wellness culture, like a kind of new age, modern wellness culture. Oh, so it's no. like, oh, no. Yeah, we, we'll we'll do a deeper episode on it, but it's like combining, oh, you're going to go on this retreat for like two weeks. You're going to meditate and like do all this like other crystal, not to disparage people who are into crystals. Crystals are cool. It's but like this kind of like goop centric tattooing. Yeah, and and when you when you ref, when you relate to that to what we've just been talking about, right? Which is that the Han Chinese were like, we are not tattooed. We are better than that. Like mm-hmm. the idea that that people are kind of trying to orient orientalize this when actually the the biggest empire in the ancient Orient were like quite anti tattooing. Yeah, I find that I find that really really. I mean, hilarious and complicated. I mean, so like you talked about um, like tattooing being a, a, a big part of the history of, of, of China and Chinese identity. And the, the other thing, and this links into this idea of what tattooing was used for or what where's doing happened, as well as the discourse around it, was something I alluded to uh, um, earlier on, which is like punishment tattooing and criminal tattooing. And in fact, you know, over the course of, yeah, like literally you know, from a thousand years BCE, so 3000 years ago, you have progressive conversations in mainstream Chinese writing, which basically says like, we've made cultural progress. We're banning this kind of tattooing and, and they're kind of leaving tattooing behind was a way of signifying, you know, their kind of moral progress. The same, same kind of thing that actually happens in Britain in the 19th century in the Hansard conversations about banning penal tattooing on military deserters when it's described as this barbaric practice. Like Chinese writers were figuring that out uh, um, much, much earlier. So like, it's difficult to know um, exactly how widespread penal tattooing was, partly because, again, it, it sort of, by the time we get to like the first, second, third centuries BC, there's this idea already embedding, and certainly when we get into the Confucian era, um, there's this idea that actually we don't do that kind of thing. And so these records about historic penal tattooing are not easy to access and they're not widespread. But there was definitely like penal codes and legal texts mentioning that in ancient China, as I said, in the Zhu dynasty, which actually ruled between 1050 BCE and 771 BCE. So that's about, yeah, 3,000, two and a half thousand years ago. Over 500 crimes were considered uh, ink crimes, right? Mozui, in which prisoners were subject to forcible punishment before being sent uh, by tattooing, before being sent to guard the city gates. A wound was gouged into the prisoner's forehead and ink rubbed into it as it bled marking these criminals as people of knife and ink for the rest of their lives. And that's the same kind of thing that was happening in ancient Greece as well around the same time, right? So um, by 167 BCE, this emperor Wen like, legally abolishes that. And um, 
nevertheless, like for several centuries afterwards, tattooing of criminals or actually in lieu of payment for a fine. So it's like you could pay your parking ticket. I mean, it wouldn't be a parking ticket, obviously. <laughs> yeah, but you could then uh, you could then be tattooed. And then it, re- it returned as a legally sanctioned punishment uh, again in, uh, in the sort of 7th or 8th century. It's a really great story around this, which again, I love, particularly in these contexts that you're talking about of people sort of romanticizing this period in some fantasized version of ancient Oriental history. So... This is a story from the Tang Dynasty, so 7th century CE. Um, a court official called Shangguan Wanair, a young woman who'd been enslaved by the Empress Wu Zetan since birth, um, but who'd risen to such prominence due to her skill as a writer and as a political aide that actually she, she occasionally gets called like China's first female prime minister. So she was this kind of ward of the queen. She was a, she, as she'd grown up, she'd become this kind of, you know, a political advisor. Um, she disobeyed the uh, Empress's will, potentially falling in love with one of the Queen's lovers. Um, and by law, she should have been beheaded. But because she was so close to the family, because, because you know she was essentially sort of her ward, um, she was instead tattooed on the face instead of... Um, being beheaded, right? And so in a fictionalized version of this story told in the 1960s, um, she has a plum boss blossom tattooed on the middle of her forehead. Um, and in fact, uh, like this serves to like connect her. Like the plum blossom is the mark of the imperial dynasty. Mm-hmm. And so she then gets to be like, okay, you're like, you're you work for us, basically. You work for us. Um I, I, I love um is also, it, uh, in- interesting symbolism there as well that mm, placed on her forehead, where she, because she had become renowned for her mind, that your mind is forever owned yeah, by us. That's right. Yeah, and I there's there's nice stories um, about how those tattoos were would have been done. So the the, the ink was apparently a mix of um, uh, verdigris, which is a green colored carbonate that forms on copper. You know, it's like mm-hmm. the kind of thing you see on roo- copper roofs in medieval Europe, um, and the um, the gall from a peacock. Okay. Yeah. So interesting. So uh, when we, as if you remember when we talked about pilgrimage tattooing in in Jerusalem, they used ox's gall because mm-hmm. it would have mm-hmm. been it would have been sterile, basically, right? Yeah. Um, so, but so again, I, I said this before. I think if we're bringing back like at tattoo conventions, like traditional tattoo corner, we should have. Um, we should have Chinese, uh, you know, Chinese tattooers tattooing people with peacock gallbladder and verdigris on their faces. <laughs> um, and actually, in this period as well, in the, in the Tang era, um, we also have uh, a series of, of what are called like flower makeup. So maybe even inspired, like they saw this woman who was like politically influential with her plum blossom on her head, and then people may have copied it. Um, there's another similar story, uh, a third century courtesan called Lady Deng, and she had been accidentally cut by her drunken husband, Sun Hui. Um, and in order to like cleanse the wound, her physician used a tincture, tinct- tincture of otter marrow. Interesting. Um, jade and amber. And this caused, this left a red mark 
on her cheek. And so um, legend has it that all of his future lovers, all of this uh, guy Son Hui's future lovers had to have their cheeks marked with red tattoos because that marks, that was a sort of sign of high beauty. I wonder, was there someone even at that stage saying, ah, that won't last. That will never last. Yeah, that'll fade. Yeah, again, Otter Marrow, bring that back. Yeah, Otter Marrow, Ox Gall, Peacock Gall. So we have, so by the time we get to We Phase Life, right, so the 12th century, we we have like still got ink crimes, about 200 of them, 200 crimes that you could could be tattooed for, mainly on the face. uh, particularly if you're a soldier who tried to desert or actually if you're a habitual criminal um, who'd already been convicted. So before we went full on face, you might end up with um, a little circle behind your ear for a robber, a square for someone to be banished, um, a round design for someone convicted to be flogged. Um, something we also seem to see similar things in Japan at actually the same time. And by the 13th century, so about a century after Wei Fei, we end up with, and again, we should bring this back if we're talking about Chinese character tattooing, adulterous men forced to be tattooed with the words committed licentious acts twice on their faces. (laughs) So wait, they had to commit it twice or it was tattooed twice? No, no, first time they'd be like, don't do it again. The second time. Okay, okay. You get a warning and then, you know. Um... My last, my last favorite example of this, right, um, of like punitive facial tattooing, it's quite clever, actually. So this is um, a, a dynasty called the Liao, a dynasty that ruled a kingdom spanning northern and northeastern China, Mongolia, North Korea, and areas of eastern Russia during the 10th, 11th centuries. The emperor there, Emperor De Guang, um, he tattooed prisoners of war with um, the phrase, by imperial command, do not kill. Uh, before releasing them back to their homes. So basically they'd go, they would have been, you know, potentially killed as prisoners of war, but he'd send them back mm. with these toes on their faces saying, you know, I've basically given them mercy. So they would then serve as like emissaries of how merciful and noble this emperor was. Um, mm-hmm. So again, if you fancy a good like, hardcore tough guy tattoo, Tom, I think you should get uh, by Imperial Command, do not kill. By Matt's command, do not kill. <laughs> I, I, I do, I do kind of like that. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> um, so I don't know. Like this sort of circles me back, and I guess where I wanted to finish up and ask you about, like, because the actual kind of true picture we have of tattooing in ancient China is like is one of at the edges, at the borderlands, particularly in Vietnam and Taiwan. These indigenous, you know. Uh, indigenous tattoo practices but in 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 what we call mainstream china today there's like punishment tattooing or soldiers and and nothing of the kind of like you know nothing that looks like the kind of thing you know a kind of a kind of chinese version of modern day japanese tattooing and i think Mm -hmm. that's really interesting yeah i think i think it kind of is interesting in the case of in a lot of cultures that have had tattooing for a while, there does seem to be almost a cohesive kind of visual identity to it. And Chinese tattooing, kind of a lot like Chinese culture, it has been formed out of so many different parts and parts at the periphery filtering inwards. And I think that's why we 
don't necessarily have this cohesive story and also for political and social reasons that you know it was pushed to the side for quite a long time that it did not fit with the central image of china's history and because it was influenced by so many people at the periphery or outside of the border hence why it was never really examined or you know coalesced into a single thing yeah and and so like that that within that space i think within that kind of rhetorical space do the myths arise and actually i mean you mentioned um you mentioned hong kong but like even in the ports um where european fleets were were sailing in the you know in the in the run up to world war 1 um I, I, there's a there was a, um, a report in the um british parliamentary reports from uh, 19 uh, when is it 1904 i think um by this like staff sarge staff surgeon um ej finch and basically like talking about this sailor who was a stoker out of chatham who'd basically got tattooed in china um you know as a, just in a kind of port side dockside sailor tattoo studio mm-hmm. um and had ended up with um had ended up with uh, uh like syphilis right in this um this part of China that's called uh, uh, Wei Highway, that was another British colony in in China, and and so like you can imagine, just as in Japan, those sailors are imagining themselves getting this great Orientalist strange tattoo. And I I was looking recently at World War Two um, battlefield, not battlefield, like wartime service newspapers, and there's lots of stories in there about squaddies getting tattooed in India. For example, but they're 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 getting tattooed in in this kind of in this way where they describe tattooing in a very exotic way. But it's mm. the local the local tattooers are just tattooing the same stuff that the tattooers back in London would do, right? But there's there's something as you said, like it gets to be exotic and strange. Um, it's it, just, it's like just, just to... by by value of this myth making, right? About the gaps that exist. Yeah, it's the difference between a telescope and a kaleidoscope. Yeah, you know, one, one one lets you see further. One changes what you see. You can still see the image at the end, but there's all this extra color around it. Yeah, I mean, I have, I have no idea exactly what that guy in in Waihaway was getting tattooed that gave him syphilis, but like it would have, I'm sure it would have been a kind of, you know, it would have been a, a pretty standard flash type design that was being done on site all over the place. I mean. You know, we talked about it. This flash book that I picked up in Nagasaki, which is about the same year, it had some Japanese kind of designs in it, but it also had lots of things clearly, you know, Britannias and uh, American, um, you know, liberties and all like basically designs aimed at sailors. But the very fact this tattoo happened in this faraway exotic place, like, got mm-hmm. to be, got to be indicative of something strange and exciting and exotic, more so well, than I think the. I- the, the and I think, and this probably happens. I mean, this this is probably sort of what's happening, as you're saying, with these wellness people, and also what's ha- what happens with people that get tattooed in on holiday in Thailand today. Mm-hmm. You know, it's because you know the reality belies the point uh, belies the point that uh, it's a you know truth is much more mundane. At the end of the day, these tattooists were it was a business. You know, right. you gotta you gotta tattoo what people want. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and 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 as yeah, as we as we said, certainly, I the the the, the Japanese tattoos we know more about were certainly leaning into that Orientalism because it helped them sell 
sell tattoos. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think I, I think that's you know a, a perfect point to end on. We will be coming back to this region. Um, a lot more to talk more about stuff that we mentioned in this episode. We're like, we should do a full episode on that. <laughs> but uh, since this is a free episode, uh, I want to thank you all for listening. And if you enjoyed this and you want to hear more episodes like this and hear episodes like this early, uh, you can check out our Patreon for as little as five quid a month. You get bonus episodes, episodes early. And uh, if you sign up at one of the higher tiers, you can also get a copy of Matt's book, Painted People. Um, but without further ado, I want to thank our £10 and above patrons, uh, Morpheus Ravenna, Woo-hoo. Max C, Woo-hoo. Chris Block, Sigrun Braga, Woo-hoo. Sasquatch, <laughs> Kirsten Wright, Woo-hoo. Kathleen Burkard, Woo-hoo. Jordan Best, Woo-hoo. Jess Goodman, Woo-hoo. our super secret patron, Woo-hoo. and Charlie Lightning. Woo-hoo. Thank you also to the patrons um, who subscribed for a whole year. We're very grateful to you as well. Yeah, big, big ups to all of them. But I want to say thank you so much to everyone. If you want to find us online, you can find us on Instagram at Beneath Skin Pod or Beneath the Skin Pod. Um, we have crossed a thousand followers. We post interesting history stuff there. And you're more than welcome to join us to let us know what you think of the show, what you don't like of the show. And uh, we also take suge- suggestions for future episodes. So thanks very much for listening. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye, thank you.